She was fine. She was just having a nightmare of some sort and kept interrupting like pretty much every word I was saying. She was okay though. She was still sleeping. That's the funny part. Um, but yeah, so right now it's 10.15 on um, Christmas Eve. I'm recording at 10.15 in the morning, by the way. So there's like some street noise and things like that that you may hear. But the main noise that you might hear is the noise of my computer, which apparently is dying or having some sort of health issues. Um, like a stroke or asthma because it's kind of wheezing and like the motor's making a lot of noise and the, whatever, like the, the hard drive. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> I don't know what like the inside of the, the, um, computer is called, but it's, it's having like fan issues or something. I don't know. Um, and even when I elevate it, it still makes that kind of whirring sound. So please forgive me if you hear that in the background because it has a tendency to get kind of loud, especially on these recordings, which pick up everything. Um, the other thing I just wanted to remind everyone is to please check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Again, that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. I actually need to update a few things over there again. I'm a little bit behind because um, I've been really busy submitting grades and, and taking care of stuff like that. Um, but now that I'm on break, even though I will be taking care of my daughter um, every day. We'll see if I'll have a chance to do any um, housekeeping work and hopefully I can for the podcast Um, in addition to like my normal housekeeping work which is actual domestic work in the house. (sighs) Deep sigh about that Um, but anyway uh, yeah so check that out again patreon.com slash left POC Um, and today's episode is actually going to be a reading revolution installment, but just the, uh, reading itself of the document that we're going to talk about. And what document is that? Well, we'll be reading some, uh, bell hooks. I'll be reading and recording, uh, an essay of hers that she wrote on love and revolutionary love in particular, which is kind of interesting because we were talking about it the other day. Um, it just sort of came up in our discussion with Michael Salamone, which you should definitely check out. Um, but it just so happens that we were actually already in talks about recording, uh, me and Richard, that is, about recording an episode about Bell Hooks um, and some of her work. So it was perfectly timed um, and not planned at all, actually. Uh, so it just kind of worked out. But anyway, on that note, um, let me get started. Just as a reminder, by the way, to anyone who may not be aware, um, the Reading Revolution series is part of the Left Pocket Project podcast in which we read and discuss uh, works by written by leftists of color and or works that inspired them, right? So obviously um, certain left-leaning texts, speeches, things like that were not written by people of color, um, but certainly were still important to many, many, many revolutionaries of color. For example, Marx, right? Like, although there are some arguments about whether or not Marx would have been considered a person of color at the time of his, uh, at the time he was alive, um, many have come down on the side that he most likely is not. And certainly nowadays in, in 
at least in America, would probably not be considered a person of color. Um, but his work obviously is incredibly influential among people of color who are on the left um, and radicals in general. Uh, so it's important for us to, to keep that in mind and to not um, fully segregate these ideas, right? Because I recognize that ideas are always in circulation um, and uh, can influence many, many different groups. Anyway, <laughs> um, this is a short essay by Bell Hooks, whose biography and personal information we'll get into during the longer episode when we actually discuss the piece. Um, so this is just a reading of the piece itself. But I just wanted to pick something that sort of honored um, a big part of her message, primarily, you know, she, because she died last week. Um, and I wanted something that was a rather, I think, in, uh, something that could encapsulate one of the central tenets of her work. Um, and I think this essay does a really good job of that. Um, and I think it's a good way to sort of honor her memory and, um, you know, her pedagogy, to be honest, because her work is so easily accessible for anyone. Um, it's very clear, you know, it's something that you can pick up even if you've not studied like feminist theory or black history or all these things that her work encompasses. You can pick it up and read it and understand it. And I think that's one of my favorite, one of the most favorite things I, I could say about her work and one of the things that I value the most um, about its impact is the fact that it was written in a way for everyone, right? Um, and I, and I think sometimes, you know, as much as we have these discussions about how everyone can learn how to read academic texts and things like that, I don't think personally speaking, and this is just my opinion, but I don't think that for something to be valuable, it needs to be hard to understand. And that goes for people of any class, right? Like if you have, uh, you could be wealthy, you could be well-educated, but that doesn't mean that these texts are easy for you and difficult for people who maybe are less formally educated or vice versa, right? It just means that, in my opinion, <laughs> you know, I think some writing is clearly meant to be confusing and written in a way that's not like speech. And, you know, I'm sure that if people spoke like that in their everyday lives, people would look at them like they had three heads, right? So the way I prefer to write and the writing that I prefer to read is writing that's clear in the sense that it's conversational. I think that's a better way of putting it. And so what I really appreciate about Bell Hooks' work is that so much of it is conversational, right? It's very clear. It's very easy to understand. And it yet at the same time, it tackles these really big issues that I think are incredibly important for us to keep in mind and are con that continue to be relevant and salient to this day. Um, so anyway, I think this essay in particular is a good one. For those purposes. So here we go. The title is Love as the Practice of Freedom. In this society, there's no powerful discourse on love emerging either from politically progressive radicals or from the left. The absence of a sustained focus on love in progressive circles arises from a collective failure to acknowledge the needs of the spirit and an overdetermined emphasis on material concerns. Without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and our world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. As long as we refuse to address fully the place of love and struggles for liberation, we will not be able to create a culture of conversion, where there is a mass turning away from an ethic of domination. Without an ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or another into continued allegiance to systems of domination, imperialism, sexism, racism, classism. It has always puzzled me 
that women and men who spend a lifetime working to resist and oppose one form of domination can be systematically supporting another. I've been puzzled by powerful visionary black male leaders who can speak and act passionately in resistance to racial domination and accept and embrace sexist domination of women, by feminist white women who work daily to eradicate sexism, but who have major blind spots when it comes to acknowledging and resisting racism and white supremacist domination of the planet. Critically examining these blind spots, I concluded that many of us are motivated to move against domination solely when we feel our self-interest directly threatened. Often, then, the longing is not for a collective transformation of society, an end to politics of dominations, but rather simply for an end to what we feel is hurting us. This is why we desperately need an ethic of love to intervene in our self-centered longing for change. Fundamentally, if we are only committed to an improvement in that politic of domination that we feel leads directly to our individual exploitation or, or oppression, we not only remain attached to the status quo, but act in complicity with it, nurturing and maintaining those very systems of domination. Until we are all able to accept the interlocking, interdependent nature of systems of domination and recognize specific ways each system is maintained, we will continue to act in ways that undermine our individual quest for freedom and collective liberation struggle. The ability to acknowledge blind spots can emerge only as we expand our concern about politics of domination and our capacity to care about the oppression and exploitation of others. A love ethic makes this expansion possible. The civil rights movement transformed society in the United States because it was fundamentally rooted in a love ethic. No leader has emphasized this ethic more than Martin Luther King Jr. He had the prophetic insight to recognize that a revolution built on any other foundation would fail. Again and again, King testified that he had, quote, decided to love because he believed deeply that if we are, quote, seeking the highest good, we, quote, find it through love. Because this is, quote, the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality, end quote. And the point of being in touch with the transcendent reality is that we struggle for justice, all the while realizing that we are always more than our race, class, or sex. When I look back at the civil rights movement, which was in many ways limited because it was a reformist effort, I see that it had the power to move masses of people to act in the interests of racial justice, and because it was profoundly rooted in a love ethic. The 60s Black Power movement shifted away from that love ethic. The emphasis was now more on power. And it is not surprising that the sexism that had always undermined the black liberation struggle intensified, that a misogynist approach to women became central as the equation of freedom with patriarchal manhood becoming the norm among black political leaders, almost all of whom were male. Indeed, the new militancy of masculinist black power equated love with weakness, announcing that the quintessential expression of freedom would be the willingness to coerce, do violence, terrorize, indeed utilize the weapons of domination. This was the crudest embodiment of Malcolm X's bold credo, by any means necessary. On the positive side, black power movement shifted the focus of black liberation struggle from reform to revolution. This was an important political development, bringing with it a stronger anti-imperialist global perspective. However, masculinist sexist biases and leadership led to the suppression of the love ethic. Hence, progress was made even as something valuable was lost. While King had focused on loving our enemies, Malcolm called us back to ourselves, 
acknowledging that taking care of blackness was our central responsibility. Even though King talked about the importance of black self-love, he talked more about loving our enemies. Ultimately, neither he nor Malcolm lived long enough to fully integrate the love ethic into a vision of political decolonization that would provide a blueprint for the eradication of black self-hatred. Black folks entering the realm of racially integrated American life because of the success of civil rights and black power movement suddenly found we were grappling with an intensification of internalized racism. The deaths of these important leaders, as well as liberal white leaders who were major allies in the struggle for racial equality, ushered in tremendous feelings of hopelessness, powerlessness, and despair. Wounded in that space where we would know love, black people collectively experienced intense pain and anguish about our future. The absence of public spaces where that pain could be articulated, expressed, shared, meant that it was held in, festering, suppressing the possibility that this collective grief would be reconciled in community, even as ways to move beyond it, and continue resistance struggle would be envisioned. Feeling as though, quote, the world had really come to an end, end quote, in the sense that a hope had died, that racial justice would become the norm, a life-threatening despair took hold in black life. We will never know to what extent the black masculinist focused on hardness and toughness served as a barrier preventing sustained public acknowledgement of the enormous grief and pain of black life. In World as Lover, World as Self, Joanna Macy emphasizes in her chapter on despair work that, quote, the refusal to feel takes a heavy toll. Not only is there an impoverishment of our emotional and sensory life, but this psychic numbing also impedes our capacity to process and respond to information. The energy expended in pushing down despair is diverted from more creative uses, depleting the resilience and imagination needed for fresh visions and strategies, end quote. If black folks are to move forward in our struggle for liberation, we must confront the legacy of this unreconciled grief, for it has been the breeding ground of profound, for profound nihilistic despair. We must collectively return to a radical political vision of social change rooted in a love ethic and seek once again to convert masses of people, black and non-black. A culture of domination is anti-love. It requires violence to sustain itself. To choose love is to go against the prevailing values of the culture. Many people feel unable to love either themselves or others because they do not know what love is. Contemporary songs like Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It advocate a system of exchange around desire, mirroring the economics of capitalism. The idea that love is important is mocked. In his essay, The Need, Love and Need, Is Love a Package or a Message? Thomas Merton argues that we are taught within the framework of competitive consumer capitalism to see love as a business deal. Quote, this concept of love assumes that the machinery of buying and selling of needs is what makes everything run. It regards life as a market and love as a variation on free enterprise, end quote. Though many folks recognize and critique the commercialization of love, they see no alternative. Not knowing how to love or even what love is, many people feel emotionally lost. Others search for definitions, for ways to sustain a love ethic in a culture that negates human value and valorizes materialism. The sales of books focusing on recovery, books that seek to teach folks ways to improve self-esteem, self-love, and our ability to be intimate in relationships, affirm that there is public awareness of a lack of in most people's lives. M. Scott Peck's self-help book, 
The Road Less Traveled, is enormously popular because it addresses that lack. Peck offers a working definition for love that is useful for those of us who would like to make a love ethic the core of all human interaction. He defines love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own and another's spiritual growth, end quote. Commenting on prevailing cultural attitudes about love, Peck writes, quote, Everyone in our culture desires to some extent to be loving, yet many are, in fact, not loving. I therefore conclude that the desire to love is not itself love. Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely, uh, both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. His words echo Martin Luther King's declaration, quote, I have decided to love, which also emphasizes choice. King believed that love is, quote, ultimately the only answer, end quote, to the problems facing this nation and the entire planet. I share that belief and the conviction that it is in choosing love and beginning with love as the ethical foundation for politics that we are best positioned to transform society in ways that enhance the collective good. It is truly amazing that King had the courage to speak as much as he did about the transformative power of love in a culture where such talk is often seen as merely sentimental. In progressive political circles, to speak of love is to guarantee that one will be dismissed or considered naive. But outside those circles, there are many people who openly acknowledge that they are consumed by feelings of self-hatred, who feel worthless, who want a way out. Often they are too trapped by paralyzing despair to be able to engage effectively in any movement for social change. However, if the leaders of such movements refuse to address the anguish and pain in their lives, they will never be motivated to consider personal and political recovery. Any political movement that can effectively address these needs of the spirit in the context of liberation struggle will succeed. In the past, most, folk, most folks learned about and tended the needs of the spirit in the context of religious experience. The institutionalization and commercialization of the church has undermined the power of religious community to transform souls, to intervene politically. Commenting on the collective sense of spiritual loss in modern society, Cornell West asserts, quote, There is a pervasive impoverishment of the spirit in American society, and especially among black people. Historically, there have been many there have been cultural forces and traditions like the church that held cold-heartedness and mean-spiritedness at bay. However, today's impoverishment of the spirit means that this coldness and, meaning, and meanness is becoming more and more pervasive. The church kept these forces at bay by promoting a sense of respect for others, a sense of solidarity, a sense of meaning and value, which would usher in the strength to battle against evil. Life-sustaining, end quote, sorry, life-sustaining political communities can provide a similar space for the renewal of the spirit. That can happen only if we address the needs of the spirit in progressive political theory and practice. Often when Cornell West and I speak with large groups of black folks about the impoverishment of spirit in black life, the lovelessness sharing that we can collectively recover ourselves in love, the response is overwhelming. Folks want to know how to begin the practice of loving. For me, that is where education for critical consciousness has to enter. When I look at my life, searching it, searching it for a blueprint that aided me in the process of decolonization, of personal and political self-recovery, I know that it was learning the truth about how systems of domination operate that helped, 
learning to look both inward and outward with a critical eye. Awareness is central to the process of love as the practice of freedom. Whenever those of us who are members of exploited and oppressed groups dare to critically interrogate our locations, the identities and allegiances that, form, allegiances that inform how we live our lives, we begin, to pro, we, begin, excuse me, we begin the process of decolonization. If we discover in ourselves self-hatred, low self-esteem, or internalized white supremacist thinking and we face it, we can begin to heal. Acknowledging the truth of our reality, both individual and collective, is a necessary stage for personal and political growth. This is usually the most painful stage in the process of learning to love, the one many of us seek to avoid. Again, once we choose love, we instinctively process the inner resources to confront that pain. Moving through the pain to either side, we find the joy, the spirit, the freedom of spirit that a love ethic brings. Choosing love is also, sorry, choosing love, we also choose to live in community. And that means that we do not have to change by ourselves. We can count on critical affirmation and dialogue with comrades walking a similar path. African-American theologian Howard Thurman believed that we best learn love as the practice of freedom in the context of community. Commenting on this aspect of his work in the essay, Spirituality Out on the Deep, Luther Smith reminds us that Thurman felt the United States was given to diverse groups of people by the universal life force as a location for the building of community. Paraphrasing Thurman, he writes, quote, truth becomes true in community. The social order hungers for a center, i.e. spirit, soul, that gives it identity, power, and purpose. America and all cultural identities are in search of a soul, end quote. Working within community, whether it be sharing a project with another person or with a larger group, we are able to experience joy and struggle. That joy needs to be documented. For if we only focus on the pain, the difficulties which are surely real in any process of transformation, we only show a, a partial picture. A love ethic emphasizes the importance of service to others. Within the value system of the United States, any task or job that is related to service, quote-unquote, is, is devalued. Service strengthens our capacity to know compassion and deepens our insight. To serve another, I cannot see them as an object. I must see their subjecthood. Sharing the teaching of Shambhala warriors, Buddhist Joanna Macy writes that we need weapons of compassion and insight. We have the, quote, you have to, sorry, you have to have compassion because it gives you the juice, the power, the passion to move. When you open to the pain of the world, you move, you act. But that weapon is not enough. It can burn you out. So you need the, you need the other. You need insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. With that wisdom, you know what it is to, you know, sorry, you know that it is not a battle between good guys and bad guys but that the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. With insight into our profound interrelatedness, you know that actions undertaken with pure intent have repercussions throughout the web of life beyond what you can measure or discern, end quote. Macy shares that compassion and insight can, quote, sustain us as agents of wholesome change, end quote, for they are, quote, gifts for us to claim now in healing of our world, in the healing of our world, end quote. In part, we learn to love by giving service. This is again a dimension of what Peck means when he speaks of extending ourselves for another. The civil rights movement had the power to transform society 
because the individuals who struggle alone and in the community for freedom and justice wanted these gifts to be for all, not just the suffering and the oppressed. Visionary black leaders such as Septima Clark, Fannie Lou Hamer, Martin Luther King Jr., and Howard Thurman warned against isolationism. They encouraged black people to look beyond their own circumstances and assume responsibility for the planet. This call for communion with the world beyond the self, the tribe, the race, the nation was a constant invitation for personal expansion and growth. When masses of black folks started thinking solely in terms of, quote, us and them, end quote, internalizing the value system of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, blind spots developed. The capacity for empathy needed for the building of community was diminished. To heal our wounded body politic, we must reaffirm we must reaffirm our commitment to the vision of what King referred to in the essay, Facing the Challenge of a New Age, as a genuine commitment to freedom and justice for all. My heart is uplifted when I read King's essay. I'm reminded what true liberation leads us. It leads us beyond resistance to transformation. King tells us what, quote, sorry, King tells us that, quote, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community, end quote. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. So that's the end of the reading. Um, again, keep that in mind while we continue on with Podmas. I'm going to have a recording with Richard where we actually discuss this piece because there are some elements of it that might be a little controversial. Um, so we can talk about that. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed the, the reading of the essay, but I hope you enjoy even more our discussion of it that's on its way. So thanks so much again, everyone. Please be safe out there. Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate. Merry, happy Kwanzaa for those of you who celebrate that as well. Um, and uh, keep listening to Podmas because we're going to have a few more episodes, even though technically I wanted to end uh for Christmas, but the reality is I didn't get a chance to record as much as I would have liked. So I'm definitely going to uh, maybe keep this going through the new year. I think that's what I'll do. So Podmas will go on until the 31st. So I'll have some more episodes.